Everyone, welcome to another Your Amigos Legends podcast. We're here with Cora Sternberg today. Um, Cora, welcome. We've done this series with many others, and we're excited to have you here today. Why don't you? Not many, Brian. Don't don't understand it. Not that well, many. Okay. One or two. A, a few others. Yeah. Yes, a few not, other legends. Thank not you. Not an infinite number of legends <laughs> in the world. And uh, what happened? You're interrupting. What's going on? <laughs> I know he interrupts me all the time. Um, so, uh, Cora, why don't you briefly introduce yourself? where you are now, and then maybe we'll sort of jump in with some questions. Okay, so hi, my name is Cora Sternberg and I'm a medical oncologist uh, specializing in genitourinary oncology. I'm uh, trained in America at the University of Pennsylvania, and then I was at Sloan Kettering, and then I married an Italian surgeon and uh, left my job at Sloan Kettering, picked up, moved to Italy for 30 years, and worked <laughs> in Rome as chief of medical oncology in a very, very big public hospital. So I've had an a, a interesting experience getting to know what it's like to work in a public health system in Europe. And uh, after a while, um, I thought I wanted to come back to the United States to work in New York again, um, because there was a, a, an offer here at Wild Cornell Medicine. Uh, they gave me full professorship and I'm the clinical head of what they called the Engler Institute for Precision Medicine at Wild Cornell, which is part of New York Presbyterian Hospital. And I've actually learned a lot about genetics and genomics, which I really think is the future which I wasn't learning as much in Italy. I felt a little bit stagnated and I felt that I could really learn a lot. And I have learned a lot. And the whole idea was really great and interesting in the beginning. And then COVID hit and my husband <laughs> is in Italy and my daughter is in Paris and my son is in Brooklyn. And I've been working a lot and it's a little bit lonely to tell you the truth. <laughs> So um, take, go ahead, Cora, we're not going to focus on your loneliness too much to start with, but we can turn this into a session to, to talk about that. What I'd like to start with, Cora, is you've had perhaps, dare I say it, the most successful kind of career that spanned across multiple continents. It's unusual for someone to move from the US to Europe particularly, and I think that's the, the direction. I mean, obviously many successful people move to the US, but it's unusual for a US person, not the least because of the language barriers. Talk me through the decision-making to move from Memorial. Obviously it was driven by your husband and love, which is amazing, On, but talk me through the decision-making and the risks that you felt you took when you moved from the US to Europe. But I can tell you that perhaps I was a little bit, um naive of, of how difficult it might be. Uh, I had moved before within the United States from the East Coast to Stanford and the West Coast. And I always thought I was very brave and could pick up. And uh, I, I fell in love. I mean, I was working, I had a full-time job at Sloan Kettering. I loved my job. I went to my first important European meeting, which by the way, was an ERTC meeting, which I didn't realize it was an ERTC meeting, but I was, it was an important meeting. So I stayed in my room the whole time studying everyone's- uh, Brian does that as well. <laughs> everything, I studied everyone's work. And then there I met uh, my future husband, Vito Pansadoro. And I had not gone there really to meet a guy or to meet a husband. In fact, <laughs> Eric Ragavan and Nick Vogelzang were taking care of me the whole time and made sure I had every dinner and lunch with them the whole time. So I never went out with anyone. Right? The very, very last night of the uh, uh, meeting, it was the meetings used to be longer. They were like five days long. He said, would you just dance with me? 
And we, it was like Cinderella at the ball. And, <laughs> and I fell in love with the dance floor, which sounds crazy, but we're married 34 years now. And I'm lucky that I married a, a, a really fine person who's a urologic <laughs> surgeon, because when you meet someone on a dance floor, it could be, <laughs> it could be anyone. But I think um, he wanted me to come. And he said, I don't think you're going to like it here. If you come and live in Italy, you're not going to like it here. I mean, we dated for about two years back and forth, you know, flying back and forth. I was a stone cluttering. He was in, in Italy. I would work. I would work on Friday, get on a plane, be there Saturday and Sunday, get back and work on Monday. Wow. Just keep kept working. Nobody knew I was gone. And uh, I, he said, you know, you should have to come and try it here. And I said, I don't know very much about Italy, but you have to promise me you have nothing to do with the mafia. <laughs> promise me. <laughs> Two. Did you speak I, Italian? Did you no. speak Italian at that time? No, I had studied French in high school and in college. And I think the minute I got to Italy, I understood Italian. I don't know how, but I think the French helped me a lot. It helped me a lot. But um, when, but I, he wanted me to just come there and try it out because he knew I wouldn't like it. And uh, <laughs> I'm not going to come be some Italian guys girlfriend and just leave my <laughs> catering. Are you crazy? I have a really good job here. I can't risk that or do that. I said, either you marry me or, or I'm not coming. So he was, he was not that anxious to just get married. The Italian men are strange in their own ways, but eventually we got married and I got there. And honestly, I hated it when I got there. If I hadn't been married, <laughs> I would have come right back. It was very, very difficult. It was a really hard change. It was very different from working in the United States. Uh, people didn't accept me right away. Uh, I had a hard time to get into the public system. I had to take uh, 19 exams in order to uh, be accepted as an Italian. I mean, the uh, Americans don't just take accept uh, Italians to work here without ECFMGs and other exams. So they didn't accept me either. But I had, I had to like almost go back to medical school and take exams. Of course, the exams were kind of easy. They would ask me sort of easy questions and it was not like really that I had to study again. So I did all the exams and then there, there was, they, they blocked me a lot. They, were, they really did not like the idea of an American competent woman coming there. I mean, it was really funny in the office, in our private office, my husband, who's a very well-known neurologist would say, he'd say, this is Dr. Sternberg. She's from Stockholm. She entered the MVAC regimen. She did this and this, this and this, and they would look there. And then he said, and she's also my wife. <gasps> she's your wife. Yeah. Well, she's your wife. That's another story then. That's cool. good. Okay. Okay. So was, it, was it just determination? I mean, was it just that you were there to stay, you know, because of your marriage, of course, and that you just, you're so determined you just wrote it out? I mean, what else was the key to that? Because you had great I, academic success I think while you were there. It was very difficult. It was a really difficult change for me because they wouldn't let me into the, the public system. They just were trying to keep me out. And they always try to keep out anyone who leaves Italy and tries to come back and didn't stay, stand there holding someone's bag has a problem coming back. This is not some, this is not something new there. They just didn't want me there, let's say. But then I had two children. And once you have two children and you become a mother, everything kind of changes. So there was a whole reason for being there. You know, I had a family, a husband, mm -hmm. whom I still love, we're still married 34 years and, and two, two wonderful children. So it made it all easier. And I first started working at the San Rafael Hospital, which was a, a private institution. So they were able to just hire me, but then they had all kinds of problems themselves. And then finally was able to get all the people who were blocking my paperwork to stop it. And it took me 14 years. And after 14 years, I was able to 
take the first what they call public concurso to become the chief of oncology in a, in a big public hospital. And they tried to kill me. They were really, really mean to me. They were so mean. They were really mean. That one guy said was asking me everything about, you know, lung cancer and where do you throw the waste from the chemo and the needles and all kinds of stuff. And then he says, you know, your problem is, your problem is that you are an expert on bladder cancer. And I said, listen, I've had it. I said, you guys are crazy. Nobody's here is an expert on anything. So I don't think that should be a negative. That should be maybe a little positive or something. And the medical director happened to have been a woman. I could see her starting to smile and laugh because I started fighting back at them. And, and I got that. I got that job and stayed there for 16 years as chief of medical, general medical oncology at San Camilo in Rome. Yeah. Cora, this is um, this is really I'm finding this really interesting. We're not going through your career as much, and we're just talking about more some. And I'm going to dive in now with a question: Do you think there have been gender issues that have have held you back? Do you think you would have been more successful had you been, you know? Do you think it's quite a complex question, and and we ask Maha the same question: And do you think do you think that being female has been really challenging over the last? When I started in the United States, when I went to medical school in the class before me, there were five women in the medical school class, okay? Five. And in my class, there was 25% women. It was just starting to, the, to have women and the women all had much higher grade point average than, than the men, because it was a really a big change. And when we first got onto the floors working in the United States, I would say the nurses were not happy about our being there. Exactly. You know, it was it was really a man's world and a woman couldn't even dream about going into surgery at the time when I first started to be a doctor. I think one of the reasons that I liked and finally chose medical oncology, I was working out at Stanford University and I finally found some women uh, that I could like sort of look up to who really became kind of like role models. And there were very few people who wanted to do medical oncology at the time. And it was something where I thought I could really help people who are sick for no fault of their own. Because it was, if you wanted to be a cardiac surgeon, they would kill you. They just didn't want women around, okay? Having said that, when I worked at Sloan Kettering, I remember we were fighting about having you know, equal salary for equal you know, work as the men. We, we, that was a movement of over 30 years ago. And as far as I'm concerned, I doubt that that's changed much. So they don't talk here even about what the salaries of the men and women. But I remember back then when I said I wanted two weeks of vacation in the US, they said, you don't need vacation, you're not married. I mean, that's what it was like here. And I don't know that it's changed that much. I think things are changing now in the United States. They're starting to change, they're you know, changing to for black lives. Asians, other people giving opportunity to everyone. And maybe even some women will be thrown in there too. I mean, the, things are changing in the United States. I think Italy is, it was, is behind the United States in terms of that also. So I think being an American woman uh, was not a, a positive and being competent was the most annoying thing for them. <laughs> Cora, let's talk about uh, let's talk about MVAC. So, um, I uh, when I first met met you, I uh, I saw you as the MVAC person, uh, yeah. uh, and uh, you're obviously extremely uh, extremely recognised for the pioneering work that you did with the development of chemotherapy and bladder cancer. I, I know that the process of pulling those four drugs together wasn't straightforward. Uh, and, I'll, and, and of course, it has stood the test of time, maybe with accelerated MVAC. 
What's your what's your recollection of of the development of chemotherapy and bladder cancer, and how did you end up um, leading that program? I think the credit must be given where credit is due. And the idea was that of Alan Yagoda, who was my former boss at, at Memorial Hospital. And he had two different regimens. One was a methotrexate and, bel- and binblastine regimen, and what, another one was adriamycin and cisplatinum. And he had the idea of putting the two together. And I was at the time, it was his idea. I was working with uh, Howard Shear at the time. And then uh, Alan Yagoda unfortunately uh, smoked a lot and he ended up being very sick. So Howard and I actually took his idea forward and did it. So it wasn't just me. It was, it was a, three people and, and we, we took the idea forward and we uh, worked on it and worked on the idea. And we worked on the idea of, of adding GCSF and we were the first to publish MBEC plus GCSF as well at Memorial Hospital. But what we saw then at that time, all the there was really nothing for patients with bladder cancer. And I remember what, the first slides I was showing was a, a man without a pelvis and then the pelvis reappeared with, with the MBEC chemotherapy. So it was really pretty incredible. And I think that MBEC has really stood uh, the tests of time. Uh, it, re- it really has. I think now we're using more the, uh, the high dose or accelerated MBAC that we developed in the URTC. I worked on that um, when I first arrived um, to the URTC. I, I knew the people from that one meeting in Ariche, and I went to my first meeting. I said, oh, look at all these Dutch and Germans. Maybe in 10 years, they're going to let me run a protocol. But instead, Peter de Mulder says, you're it. We need new blood. We want you to be head of bladder <laughs> first day. And I said, well, you know what? I have an idea. And he said, I said, you want to come to my house next week? And he came for the weekend and we wrote the high dose MVAC protocol together. And we took that forward in, in the URTC. And I can say that people are using that a lot in the United States for uh, in the neoadjuvant setting because the chemotherapy is, is finished rather quickly. But of course, you can only use it for patients who are fit. I mean, I started a man yesterday, but he's 58 years old. Here, I'm seeing patients in their 90s and where the kids want them to have chemo and I'm not giving them high dose have back for sure. <laughs> Cora, where, where do you, two questions, where do you stand on that? Are you dogmatic about um, MVAC in anybody who can tolerate and do you think Gemsys is an inferior neoadjuvant regimen? What about number of cycles? And then what about, where do you think neoadjuvant therapy is going? There's some interesting immune data, et cetera. Where do you think ultimately we're going to I'm not dogmatic about anything. I, I would, ha- I would have <laughs> to say I'm really not. And, and the majority of patients that I see uh, in New York with bladder cancer seem to be older, much older. I mean, in their eighties and even nineties and that. I would never even think about MVAC for those patients. And I don't even give them gem platinum. I give them split dose gem platinum. So I split up the dose to see to see how they do. I think that when it was first started, the gem platinum had a, a, a pharmaceutical company behind it and MVAC had no one behind it. So when the very first study by Vandermas was trying to show that it was a, 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 a superior regimen, they, they, they didn't have enough patients. They finally said it's a non-inferior regimen, but there weren't enough patients. So they never showed that. So, I mean, I personally think that the, if I can give the uh, MVAC or high dose MVAC to certain patients and patients also when patients have uh, strange histologies with rhabdoid features or something like this, I might, I might want to also try to give them uh, something a little stronger than gemcitabine and, and platinum. Uh, I'm not dogmatic. I can't be. I think each patient is different. And you look at a patient 
who's 70 and it looks like little tiny 90 year old and you'll see an 80 year old that looks like a 60 year old so i think you i think we all know that as doctors we have to judge the patient's physical abilities how much they can tolerate the chemo cora i've got a question i'd like to ask you we're not going to ask too many questions but there is a really important one i think you led the eortc adjuvant study and that's the other piece of work which i i think was really important and I actually remember, I don't remember where the meeting was, but I remember sitting next to you in a meeting and you passionately stood up and said, listen, we've got to finish this trial. Um, this is an important question. And uh, and the at the time, I think the EORTC was beginning to struggle a little bit to finish some of the studies in urothelial cancer. What was your impression of the of, of the of what we did well and what we did less well in the EORTC? And 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 just talk to me a bit about how you perceive that adjuvant data now and whether or not you think it is a standard of care? Uh, well, first of all, the EORTC adjuvant trial was done because there was a meta-analysis done in 2005 uh, on randomized trials with cisplatin. And there was only 491 patients in that trial. And there were they said adjuvant therapy works, but there were very wide confidence limits. So for that reason, we decided to, to do the adjuvant trial. The adjuvant ERTC trial was um, patients after radical cystectomy who had T3, T4, and positive uh, were randomized between four cycles of either GC or MVAC or high-dose MVAC, which it wasn't a question of comparing one regimen to the other or uh, observation and then treatment at the time of relapse. The problem was that we originally uh, planned for some 800 patients in that trial and the trial just dragged on and on and on. It was very hard to enroll patients in, in that trial. And many of the people, I mean, who were enrolling were no longer in the RTC, things were changing. I was on the board of the RTC and every time I would go there, I would fight, keep it open, I would keep it open, keep it open, please don't close this trial. It still ended up to be the largest trial ever, but the one meeting that I didn't go to, they closed the trial. <laughs> <laughs> they did. And they closed the trial with just, you know, over some 200 patients and not the 800 that we wanted. So that's why we don't have a final answer on that. I mean, in terms of progression-free survival, there was a, a clear advantage to adjuvant uh, therapy, was, whether it was GC or MVAC or high-dose MVAC, as compared to no, no chemo. But as compared to um, overall survival, as I recall, there was 22.2% um, trend in overall survival. So either if we had followed it longer or had more patients, it might have even been a positive trial. Do you, do you use we, adjuvant therapy if, if a patient yeah, has yeah, a diagnosis? I just want to say that we just published in European Urology now in January. Something I worked with the uh, MRC and we put together the individual patient data from five more trials, including that trial and the, the first uh, 491 patients from the 2005 analysis showing that adjuvant therapy, in fact, does have a 9% benefit. So, I mean, the, the original data are, cl are clear. So if a patient didn't get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, I think, is just as useful. Now, this is pretty new data put together by the MRC with... Um, 13 trials and over a thousand patients now. So that's just been published. I don't know if people know that much about that. So adjuvant therapy is, 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 I mean, I have been using neoadjuvant therapy all along, but now, you know, if a patient hasn't gotten neoadjuvant therapy, I do try to use adjuvant therapy if I can. Or in, a, in a patient who hadn't gotten neoadjuvant and comes to you, would you give them adjuvant chemo or adjuvant nivolumab? 
But the, the thing is that if you look at that uh, paper that was just published with the adjuvant nivolumab, which is a fascinating paper to me, I'm, I'm using a lot of adjuvant nivolumab because most of my patients have had neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So I don't have that question. But do you know something like, I think only 43%, if I'm correct, actually had neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So these patients were considered ineligible uh, or refused chemotherapy. So until we, I, I have not seen a deeper dive into that data of, you know, who are the patients who really benefit? I'm not even sure if that benefit is really there for those, those patients who have, definitely for patients who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and still have muscle invasive bladder tumor and positive afterwards. Those are the patients that I think, you know, really need the adjuvant nivolumab. I'm not really sure about those that are ineligible. You know, are, are they still ineligible? So if they're ineligible, what should, yeah. we, should we give them adjuvant carbo? What, what do you think? Tom? So, of course, some of the, the sub, the first plot analysis, you're absolutely right. The first plot analysis did suggest that the benefits were more confined to those patients that had had neoadjuvant chemotherapy exactly. and those patients that actually had bladder tumors rather than upper tract tumors. But of course, with any forest plot analysis, there's always risk of overinterpretation. Um, because well, not for the, the upper tract also, but you're right. I agree with you. But I, you know, I, I kind of look at it and, and think that uh, we're obviously, I'm looking forward to seeing the survival data and that. I and mean, we've talked about, about that previously. Of course. If you look back at yourself, um, if that's possible, I don't even know if that's a sentence. If you're able <laughs> to go back in time and talk to yourself into, but let's, Let's make it more complicated so you're not going back to the 1990s or whatever. You, let's say you go back in time, but it's actually now. What advice would you give yourself to, 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 to pursue an academic career in oncology for those people who are, who are sort of at that cusp of deciding whether to be a, you know, a clinician or an academic clinician? What advice would you be giving yourself to say, you know, this is what you need to do to make the academic piece work? I think that I'm an academic clinician. I, I don't have my own lab, and so I don't know that we have to separate it. I'm actually here on the uh, mentoring committee, mentoring uh, assistant professors to help them along in their career. And I, I think that it's it's extremely rewarding, especially in, in oncology, to 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 change things. I mean, all the work that we've done, not just in bladder cancer, but in kidney cancer and prostate cancer. I mean, people are really living longer. And when you see that, you see those people living longer, I think it's very, very rewarding to be involved in those clinical trials. So I think you can be a clinician and be an academic clinician um, at the same time. You know, working in the laboratory is obviously extremely rewarding. Uh, I, I don't know so many people who are able to both work in the lab and to be clinicians at the same time. There are a few brilliant people around, but I don't know so many of them. The majority of the people whom, whom I know who have been successful clinically in the clinical research have, have, have been putting patients in trials based upon work that's been done in the lab before. So I think that, you know, for me, I think that, you know, if I was working in private practice and just earning money, let's say, I, I don't know if I would have been nearly as stimulated or interest, as interesting to me and, as what it is now. And what advice are you giving to the, the trainees, the mentees who you are currently uh, supervising in oncology? What, it, what are you saying to them about what, what are the important things to drive that academic success? 
Well, they, they, I have to get them to publish early. I have to get them to work. I get them to, to work hard to publish early. I help them to publish early. I, I help them. I just help them with whatever they need help with. Some of them need help with work-life balance, even in this time of COVID. And some are young mothers and really have had a hard time. So there's been a, a lot of different things. But we have a lot of uh, fellows here that are from all over the world. And... Uh, Sometimes, I mean, I remember my very first publication in, in Indian Man uh, was a, a cardiology paper who had put my name on the paper and I didn't even work on that paper. And he said, you need to start publishing. This is going to make your career later. I mean, my very first publication I did, it was about echocardiograms or something. So if I can help young people and stimulate them to publish and help them to publish, I think that that's really something to to connect with people, to go to meetings, to be involved, you know, it, it's important. And right, Cor, last... My last question in, on the same topic, do you think the opportunities are greater in the United States uh, or in Europe at the moment in, in academic oncology? I don't think that it's greater in one place or the other. I think the world has become more united. I can tell you that getting a protocol approved in the United States can take two years it's than in Italy. It's really, I mean, the lawyers here are unbelievable. I think it's harder to work here, especially after COVID. See, Tom? See? I, I found it harder. I really found it harder. I mean, there were things that I didn't like about uh, Italy and that, they, that maybe that the, they changed the head of the hospital 10 times and that nobody spoke English and that they didn't have, they didn't understand the importance of clinical research. But here, the lawyers can make you crazy even before you see what the protocol is. You have to sign papers. It can take two years, too. That was before COVID. So I think I've seen the plus and the minus of both systems. Also, financially, I mean, there's fi real financial toxicity for people who cannot pay for medicines and drugs here. We have everything available here, but not to everyone. Uh, those people who do have Medicare are, are, are lucky that they can afford to pay for Medicare and they get, they're, they're entitled to many, many drugs that, that often are not available in Italy. I remember when uh, we, the first studies on abiraterone, um, the FDA came to, to my hospital in Italy and there was a lot of pressure on me. They'd been to Royal Marsden, to MD Anderson, they came to us and I knew everybody was watching. And they found nothing wrong. The drug was on the market the day after in the United States. And it took two years for Emma to approve it, for Italy to approve it, for them to decide the price. Because in Italy, they have to pay for everyone. But then once it's approved, they do pay for everyone. So everyone can get it. But it did take two years. So I think there are really pros and cons to both, mm -hmm. both systems. I, I really I see that more now after having worked here. Cora, my, my final question, actually for both of you, even though Tom's not a legend, I'll ask him as well. You've both, worked, he is. You've <laughs> both worked, you've both had success in multiple GU diseases, right? Basically bladder and renal, Cora, you did a lot of the pisopinib work, um, you know, and other renal work. And so if you, again, if you were sort of giving advice or looking back on that, it's, it's really hard to do multiple, to be successful across multiple diseases. So maybe just speak to that. Is it a good strategy? Was it something you thought out you know, and said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and have success in both, or did it kind of just happen? Take us through that a little bit. You go first, Cor, and then Tom can comment. Honestly, um, I was doing so much bladder cancer, bladder cancer, bladder cancer, that uh, 
Reg Hall said, oh, MBAC is marvelous, Vito and Cora. Vito is my husband's name. I said, I have to do something else. I really want to do something <laughs> else. Too. And then I started working in kidney cancer and I started working in prostate cancer. And I found it very, very rewarding. And I, I still like work. I see some patients with testis cancer, too. Uh, but I find it very rewarding to have worked in all three of those tumors. I think that many people who work even like in breast cancer, they'll be triple negative breast cancer, you're positive breast cancer. There's, I mean, it's, it's three different diseases, but for me, it's been very rewarding. Do you think you could do it from the start or because you were so accomplished in bladder, it allowed you then to branch out later in your career? Uh, I, I really don't know. I think that I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would have thought of doing it from the start. Yeah. I, we, we were successful in bladder because we had a, we had a great mentor who gave us great ideas. We became successful in bladder and then, uh, sure. the rest, it sort of follows when you do GU oncology, there are many people who do more than one tumor type. I think. Tom, you want to comment on that? Maybe then we'll wrap up. So I think it's quite difficult to pursue multiple tumor types. Um, and certainly you wouldn't, I don't think, be able to do prostate cancer and something else. Uh, I think it's just, and the same applies, of course, in lung cancer and breast cancer. Ten years ago in bladder cancer, beyond chemotherapy, there wasn't too much going on from a biomarker perspective. I remember Matt Gowski stood up a meeting and there were no abstracts from the US that were um, in bladder cancer that were selected for you know, a poster presentation session. Uh, and so bladder cancer was very quiet. And I think that, I, th I suspect it was easier to go into it then. Uh, I think the second piece, kidney cancer was always a bit more noisy. And that was partly your fault, Brian. Um, but the, the issue, I think, from my perspective, was we set up a series of investigator-initiated trials in those two cancers. And once those investigator-initiated trials were running, it was because it was quite easy to continue that process. Um, I think it's quite difficult to parachute into an area um, without a background in that area from, a, you know, from an, a, an exploratory investigator kind of initiated academic work. I think it's challenging to do that. Um, and, and so uh, the, on the other side, the advantage of doing two cancers is at any time, one of the two of them tends to be a bit quieter for whatever reason. And it allows you to continue to have this sort of academic stimulus across both cancers at any time. Because, you know, Brian, there was a period of sunitinib when it was um, and pazopinib and the other drugs where there wasn't that much change. And we, we discussed sequencing axitinib and all the other drugs, which in the end didn't make that much difference. I mean, now, of course, it's completely different. And in fact, both cancers are very busy right now. Although I'm not sure, ASCO, this year, when you, when you look at the program, I don't think there are as many trials as we had two or three years ago. And that might partly be because of COVID. But, but I must say that prostate cancer is a different cancer, but it's really been very, very interesting. I mean, there we had a docetaxel that was approved for um, uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer in 2004, and that field has completely exploded. And when we first started treating patients with abiraterone uh, versus placebo, we didn't even know what if the patients were on a drug or on placebo, they would either live or die. And it was really very exciting to be in that world at that time. And the same thing then with enzalutamide. And there's been a lot, a lot of uh, work that's gone on. I think the first time we met Cora, 
was actually when you presented the satroplatin data at ASCO. Yes. I was chairing the session and you came up and talked about, I remember that now. I desperately needed <laughs> to go think for a about it. If we had had molecular data. <laughs> the whole session, I was dying to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I was just hoping your talk would go more quickly. <laughs> Can you imagine the satroplatin data if we had it knew about HRD and chosen patients better? I mean, how much we've learned since then. That was a very good oral platin. It failed because we didn't select our patients. We didn't select our patients. And you said that at the time, actually, Cora. You said that at the time. You said we need to select patients. I remember this. this I didn't know on what at the time. (laughs) It was a long time ago. Cora, thanks. Thanks. This has been great. Thanks for sharing your time and your story. Um, This has been amazing. Congrats on all your accomplishments and persistence. We look forward to hopefully seeing you at ASCO and and beyond. ASCO, you two are great friends and very accomplished great friends. It was really fun. Thank you. Thank you, Cora. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.